0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have as my guest Professor Jennifer Mascott of the Scalia Law School. Jennifer is a graduate of the University of Maryland, the George Washington Law School, where I believe she has the record for the highest grade point average in the history of like civilization. I think that's true. Um, Jennifer clerked for Judge Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas. Um, and she's written more articles and essays on administrative law and constitutional law and delegation than you can possibly imagine. Uh, she's also the co-director of the Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, um, and she also worked for the Office of Legal Counsel under Donald Trump and 55 other things. Jennifer, welcome to Supreme Mips.
1: Eric, I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me today. Um, I've loved following your podcast, and I'm just thrilled to be here today discussing constitutional law with you. There's a lot going on these days.
0: There certainly is. I want to mention to those listening and to maybe the seven of you watching on YouTube that Jennifer is currently multitasking, uh, as, as many of us do with children, um, and she is at the National Cathedral as we are taping this. Um, and her, her daughter, I think, is singing in a chorus, and I really appreciate you fitting me in today.
1: This is wonderful. Thanks so much for being flexible. Yes, I'm, as many of you are parents, four children, and so uh, my daughter's choir concert's here today. And it's just really thrilling to be in D.C. chatting con law with you, Eric.
0: Well, awesome. Well, let's begin. This is being taped on Friday, uh, uh, May 6th, and it'll probably be released next Tuesday or Wednesday. This is the week where we got the draft opinion from Justice Alito, um, which the court has authenticated as a draft opinion, but only a draft. And of course, this was the major news all week. I did a law day talk yesterday that wasn't supposed to be about anything about abortion, and of course, we had to talk about it. What was your reaction when it first came out? And 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 what is? It? I'm curious what your reaction was when you first like saw it, and what your reaction is now four days later.
1: Well, Eric, I think my reaction has pretty much stayed the same. I mean, as a former law clerk at the Supreme Court, it was shocking. Yeah. It was really shocking, I think it was 8.45 on Monday night, to read an article saying that an entire draft opinion had been leaked from the Supreme Court. Um, nothing, even approaching anything at all like that magnitude has happened in recent memory. I mean, as a law clerk there, you know one of the really core things is confidentiality, because as you know, the courts, of course, are an independent branch of government want to make sure the justices are really trying their best to adhere to the rule of law, not be influenced at all by outside considerations. And so there's really a culture of a lot of camaraderie, believe it or not, on all the chambers, the clerks, of people being able to just, I think in a very free way, try to get to the best answer on the rule of law. And the idea that that uh, camaraderie and confidentiality would be breached. By a preliminary document uh, being released was really shocking. And the other thing, honestly, from my standpoint, that made it somewhat surreal is that I was at that time actually preparing to testify the next day before Senator Whitehouse and Senator Kennedy on Senator Whitehouse's Judicial Transparency Act. And so, of course, the discussion the next day was really about the Dobbs opinion, but it just seemed like quite curious timing. And again, I think all the senators across the uh, aisle. Um, we're just really uniformly shocked and, and dismayed that this
0: would happen. And I should have mentioned you are a frequent testifier in front of Congress on things involving the Supreme Court. So, as I know you know, and of course, listeners to this podcast know, um, I, I am very much the Supreme Court yeah. critic and probably as much a critic as anyone around. Um, I was made sad by this, too. Um, you know, I worked at the Department of Justice and I worked on a lot of document cases, and it's really important. That And I'm all for transparency at the court in 27 different ways we'll talk about at the end. But pre-decision conversations, deliberations, all that stuff needs to be secret. It just does, don't you think?
1: Well, I absolutely do because I think, and and this is one reason, actually, I think also there needs to be confidentiality in the executive branch where you mentioned you and I both used to work because it allows people to be able to vet issues in a freer way and reach better decisions it also um encourages trust and i think it facilitates people who have different viewpoints and awfully vastly disagree on the right uh, answer of the law and the constitution as i expect you and i do in many ways to be able to have full and frank discussions and try to really listen to each other and figure out what i can learn from you and you can learn from me and vice versa
0: well, that's been the goal of this podcast, uh, among other things, is to get people on who I know I we're going to disagree a lot in the next forty-five minutes, um, but to do so amicably, transparently, and honestly, and civilly is why I'm doing this. That's really you asked me before we kind of got on air, you know, how long I've been doing this. That's what started this. I wanted to talk to people like you, Michael McConnell, Randy Barnett, Jonathan Adler, people who I you know don't agree with on many things across the board. But in this day and age in our country, I think it's so important to keep talking. That's just my, my, my view on this. Um, I know your specialty is administrative law con- you know, and separation of powers and, and kind of the more um, formalist you know, mechanisms of government. But I do want to ask you one question, if you don't mind, and you can duck it, um, about Alito's reasoning in the draft opinion. Let's just assume it survives. It may not, but let's just assume it survives. Because Kavanaugh raised it as well at the oral argument, which is this line that because abortion is not in the text of the Constitution, we can't protect it. And I think reasonable people can disagree about whether abortion should be protected or not. I'm on record as saying Roe and Casey are wrong, just not any more wrong than Heller or a bunch of other cases. But my question to you is, can we just drop that line because anti-commandeering, sovereign immunity, there are a zillion things the court has ruled nationally as a matter of constitutional law: the right of people, right of parents to raise their children, the right of us to not to have um, our bodies invaded against our will. There are all kinds of non-textual things in the Constitution. Why do we say abortion is the one that we pick on in that category? I don't understand that.
1: Well, I mean, you see, pick on, I, I think the court um, does think that there are a number of things not in the text of the Constitution, and I took the point there to be actually a little bit broader, not okay. just that that word is missing and that that means we can't look to structure and context, but that if you put all of the context together and how the Constitution's working and then the understanding of the due process clause privileges and immunities, and I mean, the opinion is, um, you know, scores of pages long, he do you you know, we don't see abortion in the Texas Constitution. And I, I would say, I mean, it, it, it seemed to me actually consistent, that conclusion, with actually a number of things that senators on both sides were saying at this hearing that I did this week, too. I mean, obviously, the senators who are—a um, lot of the Democrat senators want abortion to be protected, and they were saying it's a 50-year-old right. Right. But by saying it's a 50-year-old right, there's almost some sort of internal tension there, right? Because I—like— Either it was in the original Constitution, if you talk if you, if you, uh, or Bill of Rights, right, first, fourth, and fifth amendment coming together for a general privacy right, ninth mm-hmm. amendment maybe, or it would have been ratified 1868, mm-hmm. privileges, and unused mm-hmm. due process clause. None of those things is a 50 year old right. So the idea that we have a 50 year old constitutional right that was not an amendment that was ratified 50 years ago. Something, it seems to me, is not quite right. So it's either been there for 150 years, or it's not there at all. And I think the justices who signed that majority draft opinion are saying, you know, we don't see an understanding from that older time period. And if this gets to the heart, um, I think, of probably where maybe you and I or I and other common law scholars might disagree methodologically on the Constitution, is it important to go back to the meaning at the time something was ratified? If you think, yes, you can't have a view that this is a 50-year-old right. If you think the Constitution can sort of develop with policy and protect general values, then you might, I think, describe it more in the way it was being described at this hearing on Tuesday. I,
0: I think that's fair. I think all of that is fair. I guess I have two follow-up questions, if you don't mind. Um, what the first one would be, <clears throat> if that's the approach to the Constitution, that r- the only rights we have are those that... Um, the original public meaning, or pick whatever version of originalism you want to. I don't feel strongly about those different versions. A right had to have existed either in 1789 or 1868 or whenever the relevant provision was ratified. But, Jennifer, women and people of color had no say, zero, none, in the original Constitution in 1868. So if that's our test... By definition, I think women and people of color are left out. That's question one. I'm going to throw two at you because I know you can handle it. First, the first question. The second question is, under your analysis, all of free speech doctrine is wrong. All of it. Blasphemy convictions were allowed in the late 19th century. Um, it's not an incorporation issue. It's as a substantive matter. The incident, There is much more evidence that the First Amendment originally and in 1868 was only about prior restraints and not about anything else. So those are my two questions. We exclude blacks and women from all those processes. Is that really fair? And two, are you willing to go back to an original understanding of the First Amendment?
1: Well, it absolutely is not fair, you know, under any circumstance for anybody to be excluded. I mean, human dignity across every individual mm-hmm. existing is vitally important, equally, fairly, justly for everybody. Um, you know, so what do we do, right? I mean, thankfully, there have been amendments to address a lot of the inequities and injustices. It doesn't take away, I don't think, from the terrible evil, as you've cited, of a lot of what was going on at the founding and just cruel, almost unimaginable, horrible, even. Yeah, um, It can't be uh, overstated. But, you know, we're left with the reality of what is our governing law? And what do we do when we're all living in a society that's flawed with deep, deep, deep human suffering and sin? And does that mean that we don't have, um, do we not follow laws put in place by flawed people? I think what we have to be doing is working for a more just, better system. And I think one way to think of the Constitution is a process document. And so it is the governing law. You know, you amend it to make it more perfect. Um, if it's a process document, hopefully it leaves a lot of space for the political process over time to develop and to transform and grow as values change and breathe and institutions like faith and family need to develop and change um, and, and and be able to practice and be free. And so I think actually to see some of these things is not completely answered by the original text of the Constitution, but follow its processes, which leave a lot of space for the political branches mm-hmm. and the state is, I think, one really great way forward. So that would be my hope on point one. On point two, I mean, I am not a First Amendment scholar as you are. So I'm not, if if I'm asked today about the original understandings of the First Amendment, I'm not going to have a lot of evidence to marshal on some of the specific points that you were raising. I mean, again, though, I think a lot of times a mistake that's made in the Constitution is thinking that it answers too much. And we should trust the people, of the electorate, local communities, to be able, in some ways, I think, to govern a little bit more effectively than sometimes we do. Even myself, as a law professor, right? You know, we like to think that we have the best answers. Sometimes we do. Other times, the political processes, I think, need to be free to work out some of these some of these issues.
0: Fair enough. And and, and I, I you might know this, but you know, I'm. I'm the liberal progressive guy who in 2012 wrote that abortion, affirmative action, and guns should all be returned to the states, that the only cases I think are right that struck down laws are Brown, Obergefell, VMI, and and Pentagon Papers, because that was a prior restraint. But I'm in favor of returning almost everything to the states, including abortion, as long as everything else is returned as well. (laughs) And that's my, and just whatever it's worth, it's my podcast, I guess, that's my complaint about abortion jurisprudence, is that it's treated separately from other cases where the court is deviated from original meaning and where the court just makes stuff up. Abortion is just making stuff up, but no more than a bunch of other cases. I think you and I might agree on a lot of personal rights issues about deference to other political authorities. So I know that's not your wheelhouse. So it wasn't fair of me to go there. I just, you know, because of the news. Oh,
1: no, I'm totally happy to talk about Dobbs. And as I say, I think, you know, I did um, testify, obviously, on Tuesday. Yeah. And again about process and the role of the supreme court i think and um you know leaving the justice's space to be able to um as you say reach these decisions in confidence and deliberate yeah. and try to the I, I
0: i don't know anybody and i'm as much a rabble i mean I, no one's more of a rabble rouser than me than about the supreme court um but i hope this doesn't happen again it was wrong I think we can all agree on, I hope we can all agree on that. One last question about that. What was the mood, if you don't mind, what was the mood on Capitol Hill when you were there on Tuesday? It must have been something.
1: (laughs) Well, there were more senators at this particular hearing than some of the past times that I've testified. And it's funny, you say frequently testifying, it's become that way. But I actually did not, well, I testified once for my former boss, Judge Kavanaugh. But other than that, did not testify at all until last August. because for a number of years I was adjunct teaching while having ch- children and was had but uh, and so was not um, doing as much publicly or with the government or anything. But since coming out of DOJ, I think that sort of blend of law professor, government right. service, living right. in DC, it's helped. But no, that people were people were uniformly concerned, I think, and frustrated, and perplexed, and not really sure. Um, just wanting to, you know, just wanting to talk through and, and kind of think about how this could not happen again.
0: Right. I, I've been in search of, and I've been criticized about this a little bit from my progressive friends, but I've been in search of bipartisan moments now since 2006. Since the day Trump was elected, I have been on, on the lookout for and searching for and trying to illuminate bipartisan moments. This should be one, right? We should all just be aghast. Make sure this never happens again. And no matter where one is on the spectrum, one should, political spectrum, excuse me, one should agree with that, right?
1: I think that's right. And I think at least at least, it sounded like at the hearing on Tuesday, everybody did. Good,
0: good. Okay. Let's move to your real expertise. Um, I'm not that you're not an expert on that stuff, but um, you have written beautifully and wonderful and, and and pretty wonderfully, although I disagree with a lot of what you write. Uh, but still, I, I love your, your work on this, on on both separation of powers and the administrative state. That obviously is really in the news. So let's start at a 30,000 foot level. A little bit of a trigger warning here for non lawyers, non law professors. I try to keep this very accessible. This may be a little bit less accessible, but I think we, I, I know you can handle it. So, you know, just remember non lawyers are listening. So that's, that's important. Um, separation of powers. Um, I take it you're foremost.
1: I would consider myself a formalist. What does that yes. mean?
0: So tell, if you had to explain that to a real, this podcast is really for informed non-lawyers. That's who I really want to gear this to. So if you're going to talk to an informed, smart, non-lawyer, how would you describe a formalist when it comes to separation of powers?
1: So it's a little bit tricky because I'm not sure that the phrase actually completely correctly describes the theory. Okay. But there's two, I think, general... Perspectives on how to look at the Constitution. One, as you say, is formalist. The other is maybe functionalist. And the idea basically would be Does one believe that we should adhere to formal, see the Constitution as having formal constraints, formally dividing the federal government into three branches with specific, formally specified roles mm-hmm. that need to be adhered to in a technical way, precise way? Or is it more about getting the function right? we have some overall movement or idea or direction that the government should take and so long as we stay with those principles generally all we have to do is more generally provide the function so one is a little bit more living and breathing the functionalist approach the formalist approach says these are really long standing rules put in a place ratified in 1788 we've got to stick with them no matter where they lead
0: that that's a great description that was awesome i'm i may i may steal that from my class if you don't mind as, as an introduction so that's kind of Okay. Separation of power. So, so let's make it concrete for a second. Um and let's just take an issue that's not um I mean this obviously part of this issue is in the news but but let's 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 take Supreme Court circa 1973 or so. And they have to decide okay, Nixon has these tapes and the special prosecutor wants the tapes for a criminal trial. And President Nixon says these tapes recorded confidential communications at the highest levels in the Oval Office, I don't have to give these to you, that would breach all kinds of presidential obligations, privileges. You know. uh, the court rejects his argument in a fairly formalistic opinion, I think. How would you approach that question?
1: You know, I mean, executive privilege, as you point out, I think is a challenging yeah. question. Because, I mean, obviously there's no reference specifically to executive privilege in the Constitution. It should be noted there's also no reference really to oversight. I think the role of Congress in trying to get information from the legislative branch. So one has to sort of think about principles. I mean, I think formalists would go back historically. So there is longstanding um, precedent for George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson to try to preserve some sort of confidentiality. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to ground your doctrine of executive privilege in what does it mean to vest the executive power in the president. And to the extent that that gives some space for the president to be able to supervise um, officials who, I mean, really, Congress has enabled him to supervise, right? because Congress has to enact the um, executive departments. It has to give money for there to be White House staff. Every single thing that happens under the president has been authorized in a general sense by Congress. And so the idea is, as part of the executive power, include within it the space for the president then to be able to operate. That branch that Congress has given him to lead and so you'd have to look back and see what the practice I think is in its Britain early founding and so that's really what the executive branch doctrines were based on but as you know um, from working at the Department of Justice as I did as well of course over the last couple of hundred of years the the executive branch has built up its own set of precedent about how it understands executive privilege. And because often these questions do not come before the court in a way that enables the court to resolve them, we had very few opinions, really, um, comparatively, like U.S. versus Nixon, where the court's not weighed in. So the executive branch and Congress have really been sort of left to kind of dupe this out, which I think Congress finds perplexing a lot of the times, because The person who holds the information, obviously, has a huge advantage, right? How do you get the information from the executive branch? And the Congress's power, there could be some quite interesting conflicts, right? Because it actually has has been interpreted to have some inherent subpoena and contempt power. So, I mean, there are some opinions recognizing that perhaps in a certain sense, you know, you could have the congressional sergeant-at-arms go arresting people in the executive branch to get information. But we don't really see that level of drama
0: very (laughs) frequently. We might have had Trump been reelected. I don't know. Um, So let me ask you this question. And I I think that answer is I I think I think that's not far from what the court did. I think the court looked at history, looked at stuff and decided the need for evidence in a criminal case is simply more important than a general confidentiality as opposed to state secrets or classified information. Um, and okay. they had nothing to go on. Right. I mean, they really didn't. And I, you know, I think that was a reasonable compromise. Some people disagree. But um, here, here's my question for you. Um, I've often been and there's a there's a there's a there's a footnote to this question. I think I would like in most separation of powers cases for the court to mm-hmm. say, you know what, you guys work it out. <laughs> Congress, you have all kinds of tools. You can cut off funding. You can you can dismantle agencies. You can do whatever you want, Mr. President, or someday, Ms. President. Hopefully, you have all you have all the tools on your side. You don't need us involved with a footnote that if personal rights are substantially at stake, maybe the court has to deal with that aspect of it. But in a lot of these cases, personal rights are peripheral, and that's not what's really going on. Am I crazy in thinking that?
1: Well, I think there's two different uh, parts to your to your comment, and yeah. the the, the but in particular, I really would like to heartily um, affirm is absolutely Congress has a lot of tools, and I I really strongly feel that one big um, way that government could be helped is for Congress to assert those tools more. It's very it's and and actually um, we're trying to really think through this at the Seaboard Gray Center where I'm where I'm working because yeah. as you there are a lot of tools appropriations. I mean, there's oversight. I said it's not in the text of the Constitution, but it actually, so long as it's an adjunct really to the legislative function, of course Congress can ask and request information. And perhaps Congress should impose, if it wants more information, more um, proactive reporting requirements so that the law is to sort of get the information up front rather than trying after the fact to pry it out of the executive branch. But um, I do think Congress really should be, whether it's legislating with more specificity or using those tools, um, asserting its will a lot more in the balance of power. The challenge, uh, right, is that 535 people, a majority of them in two branches, have to agree. And they're, you know, of course, in the House, they're also up for election every two years. And so I fear that the political consequences of taking a position often keep the members from being able to reach agreement in the level of detail that would really provide a restraint and control on the executive branch you get these very broadly worded statutes because that's why you can get with legislative compromise and then the court has these deference doctrines and it just gives an explosively large amount of power to the executive branch
0: well, well and this is an area where you and i will now disagree but with good cheer i hope um uh you know, Julian Mortenstern, who was on this podcast in the fall, um, and his friend Nick Bogley wrote this well, I call it a law review article, but it was really a book. I mean, it was almost a book. It was like eighty thousand I mean, it was like seventy thousand words or something. Um, where they in detail spell out numerous strong delegations at the founding, including some delegations involving the collection of money, which was a big deal, you know, big deal today, bigger deal back then. Um and and they really do give all kinds of historical evidence. And I'll just say one more thing about before turning it over. You know, in the late 19th century, Congress passes a law saying to the president um, about custom duties. You, you basically we're going to assign this. We're going to assign these amounts to these things. But if the other country acts unreasonably, you can change it. That phrase unreasonably. You criticize that phrase a lot in your literature. That phrase unreasonably um, was looked at by the court late 19th century, and said, just fine. If Congress wants to give its power away, it can. So in light of that history and that case in the late 19th century, tell me where you find a strong anti-delegation doctrine in the Constitution as opposed to as a policy matter, which we can debate all day, but not as a policy matter, as a constitutional interpretation matter.
1: Okay. Well, first, I, I was what I was meaning actually before was to say as a policy matter, I okay. think Congress should together and legislate. We can talk and I'm happy to talk about the constitutional thing too. Yeah. And maybe we need to have Julian back on or we'll get him to like <laughs> respond. I feel as though my recollection is when I've heard him talk or seen on Twitter or been in panel discussions that he might also at least there are certainly some people who do not think there's a delegation constraint inherent in the constitution itself, who nonetheless think that as a policy matter, the world would be better if Congress would take would exert more control. Um because they certainly can choose voluntarily to do so, and I think they would, you know, and and they should be updating laws because a lot of the administrative laws are really out of date. I mean, we're operating the internet under you know laws that were really written decades before the internet came to existence. That's a great point. But as far as the constitutionality of it, I mean, I do. Well, first of all, I mean, I've read. You know, Julian and, and Nick have done a lot of extensive work. I certainly think it would be it's hard to figure out precisely how one would specify the phrase what the delegation test is supposed to be if it's not going to be the intelligible principle test, but I mean to the extent that one thinks that there's legislative authority and that that means something surely there's some point at which Congress is um acting in a way that enables the executive to do something that it was not intended to do. Because it it gets into policy making or making rules in a way um, that goes beyond just carrying them out. And if I could just go back to our formalist discussion before, why is that important? Why would we care? Well, I think one reason we might care, and so I write about this actually a little bit, you say revenue laws. I mean, so one piece that I wrote um, in the GW Law Review that I've not gotten into a lot of two-way discussion with people about is about the early customs laws, which were highly, highly detailed. I mean, actually, they were quite, and I think they cut both ways. I mean, they cut against the idea that there was no executive personnel at the time because there were actually hundreds of people collecting customs. And then Congress enacted provision for a lot of people to collect taxes on whiskey. Right. So there was apparatus but it was also highly highly regulated down to like precisely the amount of tariff that was going to be on various kinds of tea and weights and how you were going to measure things and does that mean that people thought it was constitutionally uh required no, it suggests, I mean, for some reason, they thought they were the best equipped or the most appropriately equipped to do it, when it would have been easier to kick it, perhaps, to the executive folks. But if you think about it, why? Well, so so but I guess in the course of writing that piece, I went back and I read a lot of the first federal Congress debates and discussion on the customs laws. And what you can really see is how important it is to electoral interests, particularly at the beginning of the country, and I think still today. There are highly, highly disparate interests in different regions of the country. And so you get a lot more representative, um, granular democracy and representation of electoral interest from members of Congress who are coming, each of them elected every two years, all over the country than you do from the executive. So to the extent that there's any way to think about structure and context and role at all, it seems to me quite clear that what's happening when the body of 535 legislates is different than what happens when the executive carries out and he can't, he or she can't possibly represent electoral interests in the same way that the members split up district by district Can So you're just looking at different interests. You have a lot more of a safeguard, perhaps, because you have different people who have to come together to disagree. So whether we're going to just say that's a values good governance argument or we're going to say we think it's constitutionally mandated because of the structure, which is sort of what I say in the GW piece. Right. If we have this structure and we have these elections, it's meant to require policy making and legislation to be done a certain way. And therefore it's on us to figure out where that line is crossed and moves from legislating to the executive being able to carry it out.
0: That's a really impressive answer. Um and I have um a couple responses, but I I, I think I think this is an issue reasonable people can disagree about. I think it's hard. One of the responses I would have by, by the way, that exact reasoning, this is not my response, but I want to get it out. My that's that exact reasoning Is why I think the Supreme Court should never, almost almost never, invalidate laws of any kind, absent a clear inconsistency with the Constitution. Because if six out of even if six out of nine judges agree, that's not enough for a national rule. That's not enough to supplant fifty states. I I'm a big federal I'm a big federalism guy, even when it comes to personal rights. Which, by the way, the Justice Thomas, for example, is not. you know that's why my view of the First Amendment is it's way over-regulated because reasonable people can disagree, and we should leave it to the state. So we, so I understand the policy you're talking about. You may not agree it applies to the Supreme Court, but let me get back to your answer. How do we deal with let's take, an, let's, take let's take an issue of climate change. Um, wh- whether one believes we should do a, uh, have aggressive you know responses or not, it's not my question. Certainly, climate change changes, or climate changes. <laughs> Or maybe it doesn't, but somebody has to figure it out. And certainly we all have an interest in having clean water, clean air, right? I mean, that that's not something we may disagree how much, but we all want that. I don't understand how Congress could do that over time. Because there's such granular issues. The issues are so—how gr- many—I'm not going to have these words right, but, you know, how many emissions a car can, should be able to emit, if that's the right word, um, what planes should be allowed to do in the sky, what boats should be allowed to do in the water, where people dump, all that stuff. How do we expect Congress to keep on top of that?
1: Well, I do agree with you that the expertise and needing to have it in Congress is a really big issue. I mean, just let me first say, I actually would be, a virile, I, I think, I mean, I need to think about it more, but yeah. I would be strongly inclined to think there's a real basis for thinking that Congress needs a lot more staff. I mean, if you think even about the changes that have happened in the last 30 to 40 years, and I was talking to somebody um recently about some of the environmental legislation of 30 years ago and how even different that was than it would be today on the hill where People are just not taking the time or having the time to sit in hearings and go item by item Amend mark things up. I mean, I'm not sure it's always been As it is today. So I think there needs to be a space and hopefully more time and more staff to to go back and look in that level of depth also, I would be a really big advocate of Um, Congress having the resources to be able to hire the kind of um, expert legal and constitutional staff that the executive branch has, for example, in the Office of Legal Counsel. You and I were talking before the podcast started about our time at DOJ. Hundreds of attorneys at DOJ, many, many attorneys in other agencies. I mean, how is Congress ever supposed to have the resources to figure out whether a law is even constitutional and assert its own interest in contrast to the executive branch, when it's sort of outgunned by just the sheer number of lawyers. In fact, uh, maybe folks would be interested to know that when Congress sometimes has questions about, is a particular provision in a draft bill constitutional, it will often kick those questions to the Department of Justice. And it's a really challenging questions. Jennifer, of I'm, sorry, I'm
0: sorry to interrupt. But I, I'm sorry to interrupt, I almost never do that. But I, I do want to mention, that is exactly the law Professor Michael Paulson and I worked on at the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice, um, Congress passed the law prohibiting the funding of obscene art by the national endowment for the arts. And in that stat, and in that, and, and they specifically said to the executive branch, what you just said, sorry to interrupt, but what you just said, you executive branch define obscenity for this statute. So Paulson and I went into a room because they knew he was very conservative and I was very liberal. We went to a room and we wrote a law like Paulson and I, no one heard of us. No one voted for us. No one heard about us. We wrote a law, It had the effect of law, it had the force of law, and they kicked the can to us. It's exactly what happened.
1: I mean yeah so it's so it's an interesting right it's an interesting problem and I guess I have a couple of thoughts on it. I mean number yeah. one cuz one of the things I was going to say is if we if we're really worried about expertise in the environment for example I don't think it I mean I think there could be ways to use the expertise of the executive branch. I mean perhaps they send over proposals that then Congress yeah. has to actually enact. I mean quite frankly they were the, the members were working that way with Alexander Hamilton on financial issues right. back in the it's asking him for extensive reports, but the important thing is they were then the congressmen were making the political decision later uh, and the, taking the political cost to figure out how to enact them. So you get the expert information, but then you were the one who who makes the makes the law. So, I, so then, how does that relate to you and Michael Paulson writing a statute in a <laughs> back smoke filled room at DOJ in the 1980s? Well, I mean, maybe it's fine if the executive branch or the Congress has the tools and the will to then push back. Like, certainly you can't do something that then they somehow feel bound to pass. And I guess that's that's my concern, is that it it doesn't seem to me that there is the – and maybe it's those of us who are attorneys. Maybe we should be more inclined to go work in Congress than try to get a job in the White House or wherever it is we might work. Because we really want – I think the people who are most familiar with constitutional law to be able to be there giving the members the tools about how to effectuate their policy interests constitutionally, just like the executive branch has. Otherwise, you're going to get a very pro-executive slant in all the constitutional analysis that's being done in bills. And the members of Congress don't are not going to have time to push back on that and question and challenge and assert their own interests.
0: So so I have a little bit of a weeds question. By the way, we agree on the policy on this, 100%. I, 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 I would have preferred them to say, all right, DOJ, you draft something that you think works constitutionally, and then we'll pass it if we can pass it, rather than just letting us have the force of law immediately.
1: Okay, totally. Oh, yeah. yeah, We agree.
0: We, we agree on that. Where we would disagree is the role of judges, but I don't want to get into that quite yet.
1: Um, well, no, I agree with you. I agree with you that, I mean, look, a lot of this could be solved. I think if, if, if judges, and I think it's starting to do this and try to be attentive to it. Far, what does it mean to resolve a concrete case in controversy? And resolving a concrete case of controversy, even if you're kicked a, a big constitutional issue, may not lead to the outcome of doing a so-called strike down a statute, right? It might mean applying the correct answer in a particular case, and the development of the law is going to move a lot more incrementally and not look as much like nine people policy making you talk
0: about. Right. No, I think we agree a lot. Let me ask you a weeds question because it goes back to your formalism. And again, trigger alert, this might get a little bit in the weeds for non-lawyers. So my understanding is, in the 1920s and 30s. And I forget whether it was Roosevelt. I think it was Roosevelt, but it might not have been. But at some point, the president of the United States went to Congress during the Depression or right before the Depression and said, we need a bigger executive branch. We need more people. I need more staff. The country's falling apart. Give me the authority to do this through executive orders and other things. Um, And then if you don't like it, you can veto it And not with both houses of Congress and and presenting to the president, but, you know, just you, Congress, acting alone can veto it. And it was kind of a compromise. It was like, we're the experts on what the executive branch should look like, but you guys who make laws, so give us this authority and you can veto it. The irony of that, and, and I think the veto part, you and I agree on the policy of that. The president knows what he needs, but Congress should have to sign on to it. But under a very formalist view, the legislative veto was held unconstitutional, which makes it harder for Congress to agree to that kind of compromise. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about all that.
1: Well, I do think that, you know, obviously, finding the legislative veto of determining to be unconstitutional makes it harder for Congress to so-called take back power, which means it has to maybe do a little bit more work on the front end, maybe it has to legislate with more specificity, maybe more reports are required, maybe it has to do more appropriating. As far as the specific issue of staffing, yeah, um, I actually think this is something that scholarship could really more significantly explore. Um, So you alluded to at the beginning some of my work on separation of powers. I mean, the, the most in-depth study that I've done is what is the meaning of officers in the United States right. in to art- So to the extent that certain officers that officers have to be appointed by the president with Senate consent or at least appointed by department heads the president reports who falls in that body of officers and I think it's actually quite large Um, the answer I think is is quite relevant to the um, question that you pose with with, um, President Roosevelt because the appointments clause does not just give the president power in fact i actually think an argument could be made that it takes power away from him because of giving the senate the role and consent the other interesting thing it does is it says congress has to establish offices by law so to the extent that something's an office the president can't just make it up and this was to address the point in the declaration of independence that we didn't like the king making up all of these new swarms of officers filling the seats and sending them across you know the, the atlantic to rule over us right um so Congress has to sort of get the will to create these offices. Now, how specifically does it have to create them? Well, when I looked into this for the officer piece, maybe not that specifically. I mean, the first statutes went through and did authorize positions. But they would would leave it somewhat open-ended sometimes. They would say, for example, Treasury Department, you can hire, Secretary can hire as many clerks as he thinks he needs. So it was somewhat open-ended. So there might be able to be a compromise in terms of, Congress has to decide, I think, to give the funding, right. create, the, create the certain um, broad brushstrokes of what the position's going to be. But there could be some freedom within that, like we have at, you know, in certain departments to name more or fewer assistant secretaries or assistant AGs or whatever, depending on what we think we need. I think how DOJ's statute works, actually, is it's, it definitely specifies the number in the statute, but technically speaking, The attorney general could shift them around, I think, and make, um, you know, there doesn't have to be an assistant attorney general for Office of Legal Counsel, Office of Legal Policy, all these things. Um, So there is a little bit of flexibility built in there.
0: I think your point that staffing the executive branch or internal executive branch issues may be in a different box than when the executive branch passes administrative rules that apply to private right. conduct and that apply to yep. people outside. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that before, but I think that's right. I think, in fact, the very first Cong- uh, Congress, right, gave George Washington a million dollars. Spend it. Don't spend it. We don't care. Because there wasn't a lot of thought that it was mostly going to be internal. It wasn't going to affect the country in a substantial yep. way. Yep, sure.
1: they totally. that
0: Totally. You agree with that? Does that make sense?
1: Yes, yes. absolutely. Um,
0: I have one more separation of powers question or or administrative law question, and then I do want to spend the last few minutes, if you don't mind, talking about the federal Society for a minute, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, So can you explain what the Chevron Doctrine is and why I think you're skeptical of it?
1: Well, sure. The Chevron Doctrine essentially says that if Congress passes a broad statute and there's a word that doesn't necessarily have a clear meaning, that then courts will defer to the executive branch as the experts to um, to interpret the meaning of the word. And the theory is that if Congress only gives us a general concept, what its meaning is to delegate to the executive branch experts the decision for how to carry it out. I have, I think. Um, so, so my 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 general position is that the Chevron doctrines that's come to be applied and known as defer to the executive branch on questions of law is incorrect because the Article III of judiciary would be answering questions of law. But what I think the nuance here is, I think that it is the case. So so if it's a question of law, really, what does the law mean? That we have to work really hard to figure out the meanings of the wo- the meaning of the words. We have to figure out how the provisions go together. That said, it's certainly the case that so long as it doesn't violate whatever delegation constraint there may or may not be in the Constitution, depending on your view, it's certainly the case that Congress is going to sometimes authorize the executive to carry out certain tasks. And so it might be that the text of the statute actually puts into place a legal meaning that gives policy discretion. So I, for example, think that some of the Fox Doctrine, State Farm, all of that review, Arbitrary and Patricia's review, actually we should be deferring more to the executive than we do. Interesting. Because to the extent that your clear, de novo, legal interpretation reveals that there is actual policy room to work to be done there, you should defer to the executive in carrying out the policy work.
0: Interesting. Um, I think that the next zero to five years we're going to be... Talking about, debating, arguing, thinking about all of the doctrines involving administrative law much more than we've done any time, I think, in my lifetime, certainly. And,
1: uh, I agree.
0: Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I, I will say I think that's where originalism maybe really has a blind spot in this sense. Uh, So it's my podcast. And once a podcast, I have to mention Richard Posner because that's just my guy. And uh, that's just it's just an informal rule of supremacists. I have to mention Posner once once a podcast. Um, um, So bear with me uh, on that. People have been patient in the past. Um, You know, if he was looking at the issue about the appropriate balance between Congress, the president and the courts, which is what we're talking about, what should be the appropriate balance among those three institutions? He would feel very strongly that we should have the conversation mostly along the lines you and I have been having, which I, th- I, th- I think your idea about giving Congress more staffing, more money, I think my idea that the president should enact things but Congress has to ratify them—those are all good policy things. Like I, I you and I probably agree a lot on some of that stuff. But what he, but the, the question I have is, he would say, focus on today, for goodness sake. We live in a different world. That was 13 colonies turning into states on the east coast of the United States with a very limited number of people. We can't use that blueprint for government today. And then he would say, and that's what John Marshall said. I mean, it wasn't like that wasn't like that. Posner making stuff up. That's what Marshall said in McCulloch that it's a flexible document that needs to allow for change. Um, so in 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 over the next few years, when we are hammering out our differences. An administrative law and the, these appropriate balances. Shouldn't we focus on today and not 1789 or even 1868?
1: Well, I think we should focus on today, but again, that's why I'm saying I think the Constitution puts into place policy and procedural constraints. So we should try as hard as we can to understand, I think, the particular institution that the Constitution was putting in charge of various decisions and try to apply that the best we can and give space again to the political branches to decide and I think one thing we talked about earlier in the podcast and we shouldn't forget is the states I do think the states are going to have to have a lot of room and I know there are folks who very strongly think in modern times we need strong national answers but I just think that I just want to really clearly say that unless we give space, I think, for the public and for the states to govern and make decisions, we're going to end up with too much control, leading too much toward the kind of theory that we're not comfortable with in our society if it's all done at the federal level. And I think we should have confidence in the states. I mean, they're doing a lot of great work. And so to the extent that there are geographic and regional interests that come to play and that the answer for Georgia may not be the same as the answer for Pennsylvania, we've got to let legislatures at the state level um, have space to regulate some of these issues. And then sometimes, quite frankly, maybe the government doesn't have the best answer and we need to let families and individuals um, and local schools make choices.
0: So if all of that is true, and I actually agree with 99% of what you just said, see, common ground, yeah, us, yes. um, then I got to push back a little bit, though, on your former boss, for example, Justice Thomas, and say, okay, the same is true for affirmative action. What is true in Atlanta, so let's just take Atlanta, Georgia, my law school, which is two blocks from the old heart of Atlanta motel, which in my lifetime, and Jennifer, I'm old, but I'm not ancient. <laughs> in my, I'm old, but I'm not ancient. In my lifetime, a hotel two blocks from my law school, went to the Supreme Court and said, we don't have to take black people, we don't want to take black people. What is true for Native Americans in the, the Southwest, what is true for African Americans in downtown Atlanta, what is true for Asians in San Francisco, these are all local conditions that make big differences on the ground locally. There's not been a lot of discrimination in Atlanta traditionally against some people of color because we didn't have a lot of people of color other than African Americans for example. So if you're going to make that argument about, you know, kind of return to the states, families, all that stuff, I agree. But then abortion, affirmative action, guns, and most issues that are not definitively resolved by the Constitution should be left to the states. And I'm all in favor of that, including abortion, even though I'm the most pro-choice person you ever meet. I met my wife giving a talk to Planned Parenthood. I volunteer for Planned Parenthood. I would send it back to the states as long as affirmative action and guns are also sent back to the states. You can yell at me now.
1: <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there's, no, there's no yelling. We're having a great discussion. I mean, look, I I think on all of these issues, right, we have to be guided, as you say, by the text and context and figure out what's there and what isn't there. And I think the court is trying hard to do that in a lot of these issues. I mean, you referenced Justice Thomas and just on a, on a, on a separate point, I mean, one, I mean, I Well, having, you know, just talked with him and spent a lot of time with him. I mean, he is certainly somebody who has a deep, deep understanding about the different interests in different parts of the country and the need for there to be space, obviously, for the political branches to um, to legislate. I think since you bring up um, affirmative action and other issues in the South, I mean, I I also should say, well, I mean, there's a lot I could say about Justice Thomas. I mean, number one, like he's one of my top heroes, top favorite people on the planet.
0: Well, he's but one of my also, least favorites, I, so we can disagree on that. Go ahead.
1: But, 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 but I mean, the thing I think to understand, so Justice Thomas, right, he grew up under segregation. He grew up um, at a time where there were very few government institutions in the South, but they, but, 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 they were, but there were, a, he grew up under segregation, and that was his experience. And so I do think sometimes um, people sometimes miss understanding his perspective or what's shaping sometimes the view on government authority in the Constitution, because we have not gone through that, right? That's not our background. So it doesn't seem at all surprising to me that somebody who grew up under segregation but then has come to really love this country and serve it in many different capacities would um, try to bring the really trenchant review to the constitutional text that I think Justice Thomas tries to bring in every
0: decision that he. Except colorblindness is not in the Constitution, not close. They could have well, put that, they could have put that in. They really I mean they really could have. They didn't.
1: I again I think I just I think I think Justice Thomas's jurisprudence is often, you know, misunderstood, and I'm not saying you do this, but looked at more for what is the bottom line and does somebody agree or disagree? And I just have to say, I think yeah. he is, and I know him to be somebody who in every case is really trying to figure out the neutral answer and just has a love for his fellow human that I was sort of really want everybody to be aware of on the podcast today.
0: Okay. Well, I, I, I'll accept the love for the fellow human, but, um, I will send you my Dorf and law piece, which lines up the Republican Party platform of 1992 with Justice Thomas's constitutional law agenda. Let's move on to something else. Um, and then we'll, fe- we'll finish with this. Um, so I had a bizarre and wonderful experience two weeks ago at a Federalist Society debate uh, in Cincinnati. Um, okay. I still do these. A lot of my progressive friends don't. I think they're wrong not to do them. Um, because I want to meet the lawyers and the students and the federal society law professors at other schools. Um and it, I, uniformly we have educational good faith debates, meetings, dinners, etc. I was shocked to learn, but I think there's so much truth in this and I really would love your opinion on this. Uh, Cuz you were a member of the Federal Society, right? I assume.
1: Yes, I am a member.
0: Yeah, of the yeah. Okay. So <laughs> Let me give you the analogy of what I'm trying to explain. If the leadership, now ACS is like, you know, a, 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 a kernel of, sa- a, a, sa- a piece of sand compared to the wealth of the federal Society. But leaving that aside, if the head of ACS was two standard deviations away from the median Democratic voter and had enormous power and enormous money, I think that would be a problem. Not a problem for the rank and file of ACS but a problem for the leadership of ACS. I was with a bunch of Federalist Society students, lawyers, and professors who kind of had sympathy for my position that FedSoc does fantastic things on the ground with with law schools and lawyer chapters and students, and and I participate in all of them whenever I'm asked. But the leadership is really a problem. Because the leadership represents the far right of the Republican Party, what and sat in the White House during Trump's administration, and one of the issues we're seeing today on the court, I think. Well, let's just stop there. I they agreed with me that there's a disconnect, and that we FedSoc should straighten that out. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, I don't know what we mean by a disconnect. So no, I don't think there's a disconnect. Okay. I mean. Look, if, if, if a disconnect means are there people who are attending Federalist Society events and going to debates and participating in the society who do not share the view of all of the members of the board or the professors or whatever, absolutely. And I think that is the intent, really, of the Federalist Society, is that it started to be a debating society. And, you know, without fail, uh, the associations trying to get people of all perspectives to show up to, to events. I mean, all of the other points about concern, I, don't, I mean, I don't have any concern, actually, about it. At all I mean there are plenty of I think in our society in the United States of America really well-funded groups and I I can't comment because I don't have any internal knowledge about any of these kinds of kinds of things really at all for any of these groups um, other than perhaps you know one's the one that I'm co-directing but um, many 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 groups all on the spectrum who have different levels of funding who are engaged in different things and the American people are smart they're well educated Again, back to our system, separation of powers. We have a system where decision making spread out, and so to the extent we're talking about whatever it is, the concern of the of the, of the moment is whether it's appointments or whatever. You know, we have like a Senate of a hundred people who have to decide whether to confirm somebody or not. We've got a big Congress that's decide whether to push a law or not. So I just, I don't I don't know what any private group having money or not having money really has to do with any of that because- Well, well with
0: Jennifer, nobody, no, I'll come on, Wait, wait, decisions. I can't, wait, right. We know that, and, and both sides, we know the big money, White House has done a good job of explaining that Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett were all supported by huge amounts of money. And we know that the executive vice president of the Federalist Society, along with Heritage, gave Donald Trump his list of potential judges. We know Donald Trump didn't know those people, had never met them, wouldn't know them from Adam. Um, and that 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 combination of things was a major part of Trump winning the first election. One of five voters said it was, who voted for Trump. So, So my only point here is, if Federalist Society were picking people like Souter and Blackman and White and, and, and moderates like that, and, and I have the same critique about Ginsburg and, and Sotomayor, I mean, I, as I do about Alito and Thomas. I have the same critique. But I, I, I've met a lot of Federalist Society people who didn't vote for Trump either time. <laughs> and I don't think they're represented by the leadership of the Federalist Society. And, I was just, and that idea was just agreed to by at least some Federalist Society members I talked to. Am I crazy in thinking that?
1: Well, I mean, I guess even if that's correct, isn't that – doesn't that speak actually well to the Federalist Society?
0: It speaks great of the Federalist Society except for its leadership, which is what I always say. Well,
1: well I mean, I guess I don't – well, again, I just – I mean, I don't know. I mean, are okay. we saying that there's a group in American society that can have a strong view? Strong mean, but back to your point, you you, you and you in your introduction to the question mentioned money, and you, this actually came up a lot in the Senate hearing that I was at on Tuesday because it was all really precipitated before the Dobbs leak by Senator Whitehouse having bills about disclosure requirements. And so, you know, senators kept making reference to money. And I guess it, it, it at a higher scale, whether we're talking about demand justice or Senator Schumer going to the steps of the Capitol and calling out justices by name or whatever group we're talking about um, that, that's trying to spend money to influence the process. Who is the decision maker? Who's being influenced? And at the end of the day, it seemed to me, and I was coming from some of this from the perspective of being a former Kavanaugh clerk sort of standing there actually seeing what seemed to be quite a bit of resources to try to tear individual's reputation. And the question is, well, who are they influencing? At least in that case, it seemed quite clear that it was senators who were gonna have to take a vote. So I think, look, I think the senators are smart. And are put in a place by the american people and they're gonna at the end of the day decide what way to vote and you know the money is really being spent to influence the people with the vote and i think what's important is that we're sort of all sophisticated smart players aware and using our own mind and value judgment and understanding the constitution into whatever our lot of life is to try to make decisions to the best of our ability you know to move the country forward in a great direction
0: fair enough Um, One last thing that's personal. Fair enough. Thank you for that. Um, One last personal note that I'm I'm more informing you of. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just informing you. On this podcast, I have mentioned now several times that your former boss, Justice Clarence Thomas, who by every account I've ever heard is an amazingly wonderful, gentle, lovable person in person. No one has ever – I don't know anyone who's ever said anything – Other than Anita, I mean, obviously, there are some women who might disagree. But overall, every law professor I've ever met who's met Clarence Thomas, liberal, progressive, said, what a nice guy. So I'll take that Mm -hmm. as a given. He has been to the University of Georgia. He has been to Mercer. He has been to John Marshall. And he has been to Emory on numerous, numerous occasions. He even went to the University of Georgia after there was a big scandal about his appearance at the University of Georgia. In other words, there was a big scandal. A dean had to, all kinds of terrible things, inappropriate things, in my view, happened, and then he went back a few years later. He will not come to Georgia State. We've given him an open-ended invitation on numerous occasions. We are at law school in downtown Atlanta in the state where he was born, and he will not come. Um, Akil Amar tells me it is largely because he's afraid of getting an unwelcome reception from me, <laughs> to which I have said many, many times that will not happen. Um, I did not invite him the third time, a former who he's friends with. Open ended invitation. He still said no. Um, so I'm not asking you anything. I'm just saying it would be nice if I got some message from somebody somewhere sometime that Justice Clarence Thomas would consider coming to the Second state flagship institution of the state where he was born because he goes to every other law school in this state on a consistent basis. Don't have to respond. I just wanted to. As you want to. <laughs>
1: well, Aaron, look, I have absolutely no knowledge of right. any of that at all. I can echo as you say. He every time is friendly to everybody. Knows the name of all the court staff. Yep. Has loved being places, and quite frankly, if you look actually, I think at our current Supreme Court, I mean, in terms of the amount of time he spends teaching in the classroom and everywhere, he is so agreed, approachable all the time. So I'm going to take this as a great compliment to Justice Thomas that your institution would love to benefit from seeing him, and what a wonderful, wonderful thing that um, your students and faculty would spend time. He's a
0: Supreme Court justice. I mean, I you know that's been my position all along. I mean, no one's been more critical of him than me. No one in the in the world than me, but. We would benefit from him being here. And I don't really understand why he won't come. Anyway, that's not your problem. I just wanted to mention it to you, just in case you could do something about it indirectly. Anyway, Jennifer, thank you so much for doing
1: this. But I am so glad to be able to choose how to spend my own time and choose to spend an hour here in this discussion with you, which has been just so nice for you to invite me.
0: Oh, no, it was my pleasure. And I hope we get to see each other in person soon. COVID has been hard on that for the last couple of years. But um, I know we may go to a conference together in in Wisconsin if we get lucky. So we'll see.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Eric. And really appreciate it. You have a lovely day. Thank you,
0: Jennifer. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.